Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Anna. For the past few weeks, we've been doing a deep dive into financial therapy, unpacking all the ways that our feelings about money turn up in other parts of our lives, like in our relationships. And that's something we talked about in one of our earliest episodes with a lot of your stories about love and money. We first released this episode back in 2014, and it's still one of my favorites. So today, we're sharing it with you again. And in the meantime, our inbox is still open if you want to tell us what you're feeling about this moment of protest against racism and police brutality. We'd love to hear from you at deathsexmoney at WNYC.org. Okay, here's the show. I am bad with money. I earn more than him. I think I make good money, but I really don't know. We keep a running tally. Yeah, bottom line is my husband and I are avid savers. But I'm constantly questioning if what I make is enough. And um, I decided I couldn't stick it out with somebody who was financially irresponsible. This is Death, Sex, and Money. We're all dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Do you think the sexual revolution has gone too far? And need to talk about more. I love money, I love power, I love capitalism. I'm Anna Sale. Hi, Anna. This is some information for your upcoming podcast on the topic of money in relationships. I asked for your stories about love and money. You sent in a lot about bad decisions, practical fixes, and lingering questions. I uh, just sort of got out of a relationship that was perfect and wonderful in every way I felt. And uh, then when the idea of a prenup came, it just, our relationship just fell apart. Tiffany Harris is 28. She lives in D.C. Her message started with a simple plea. Can we talk about prenups? I was engaged to this guy, a really wonderful guy, we met while we were we were living and working in Israel, and uh, we were talking about the wedding and planning and setting a date, looking at rings. I bought a dress, and then he sent me a Facebook message that said something like, oh, and I'm sending you this document, you know, that my parents want, and I'm going to need you to sign it before we get married. I just said something like, oh, this is getting, like, less and less romantic by the day. <laughs> Why did he want you to sign a prenup? Um, Well, first he presented it as something that his parents wanted, and then it became something that he wanted, you know, sign it or we have to break up. How long were you together? About three years. And how would you describe what was the impasse about a prenup? He's someone who's supported almost 100% by his parents, and I think what they say really dictates a lot of what he can do or what he feels like he can do. And I guess for me, I was thinking about it today, and I remember my my mom's side of the family came from money. And when my grandfather died, there was um there was inheritance that my family fought over. And it was I was only five at the time, but it was just disgusting. You know, I'm I'm 28 now and I still haven't met my uncle because they're total enemies over this. And I was just really like turned off by what I felt was a kind of obsession with money. But then again, it you know, in the end, I was really, I, I was ready to concede because I felt like, you know, it's it's hard enough to meet someone just to have that connection. That's not something that comes along every day. It seemed really silly to sacrifice it over this. And if I love him and it's meant to be, then we wouldn't get divorced. And I was totally ready to concede. I just 
wanted a few things changed in the prenup, but it just ended like that. Do you think, though, that the prenup prompted you to talk about things that would have quickly become issues in a marriage? Yeah, uh, maybe not quickly. I don't know if... I kind of think that if we would have been together longer and married longer without all of that, we would have developed a stronger bond and better communication skills to get over those things. So it sounds like you're you're mourning the relationship. You wish you still had it in your life. I am. I'm I'm very very sad about that and I you know and I really miss him too. Do you have the kind of relationship with your parents where you talk to them about this? No, I didn't really because I I didn't want my family to hate him. <laughs> oh, you were protecting him. Yeah, exactly. Like even it's like so embarrassing. I still haven't told like a few people at my work because I'm just like I'm so embarrassed and you tell people you're getting married and then it's like they're asking about it and you're just like, yeah, it's still happening. Yeah. I mean, I haven't taken it that far, but like, yeah, so. And you're you're 27? I'm 20. I just turned 28. <laughs> 28 is a fantastic year. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I loved I so. being 28. Yeah. I'm more partial to like 22, but I I don't know. Hopefully it's like knowledge instead of like scarification or something that's going to like make me unstable and untrusting in my next relationship. Like sometimes I feel like this new wisdom is good and sometimes I'm like, oh, it just makes me like bitter (laughs) or hopefully not. So Tiffany doesn't want to be bitter, but she also doesn't want to be surprised again. Sandra Cordova doesn't want surprises either. Dating at this age is so different than when you're in your 20s. And you really have to be just open for being honest with what's going on um, with your bodies. Sandra and her boyfriend are in their 50s. They've been together three years and are in love, but they're not getting married because it doesn't make financial sense. Sandra is divorced with grown children. She owns her house and her own business in Longmont, Colorado, outside Boulder. Her boyfriend lives in Denver, where he works from the house that he owns. While we like to think that we're going to be healthy forever and we work very hard at it, the reality is what we see in our parents' generation is dementia, strokes, you know, Alzheimer's in either one of our families. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen, for instance, is my aunt, who had been chronically ill, she had a partner. And they never married because if they had all of his assets that he'd worked through for his lifetime would have been taken up for her medical expenses. And so long as they did not ever marry, Medicaid covered what her basic needs were for health care. We're such practical people and sadly the romance and the idea of, of the marriage and all this has to be weighed against the practicalities of the, the laws and the, and the health care and the long-term health care issues in the United States. Yeah. If it weren't for money and if it weren't for, for having to deal with the legalities and financial considerations, would you want to marry your boyfriend? Yes. We've already made a commitment to each other, you know, where, where we have verbally expressed to each other that we really do want to be with each other till the end of time, you know, whatever, whatever that means for the two of us. 
he's a great partner. And, and, you know, he tells me that I'm a great partner for him. And, and life is a lot of fun. Everything that I could envision it being at this point in my life with him and, and going forward with him, too. Mm-hmm. But how to navigate the finances? Well, my mother has developing dementia now. And my dad is looking at the finances. And none of us are wealthy people. Yeah. But my, my dad has looked into what it would take if it comes to mom having the kind of care that he cannot provide at home. And keep in mind, he's 78 years old. He's, he's very healthy and as strong as can be, but he's still 78 years old. And as mom advances with her dementia, because this is not going to get better, will she need that long-term care? And if she does, my dad's entire assets will be wiped out in two years. So how do my boyfriend and I prepare for that as we get older? Yeah, so you're you're in, in this relationship and, and trying to figure out what you want together and making decisions for you two as a couple. And in, in the same moment, you're watching your father and your mother's dementia and seeing what happens as you age. And looking at my children and saying, what we want for you is to marry somebody and raise children together and have that full experience in life. And at the same time saying, well, we don't know that we can get married. Where did you meet your boyfriend? We met on a motorcycle ride. Um, I have a motorcycle. He has a motorcycle. That is hot. (laughs) (laughs) I've been riding motorcycles my whole life. I grew up working in a Honda shop. It was was actually through a meetup group. It was a motorcycle ride, and there were supposed to be six people who showed up. Greg showed up, and I showed up. It was just the two of us, so we just rode motorcycles, went for lunch, went hiking the next day, and, you know, the next day he called me and asked me out on a date, and I told him, no, I'm really not dating right now. I had just gotten out of another relationship, and uh, he talked me into it. He said, Uh you know, I know I should come back in six months, but someone else will probably snag you before then. He said, let's start at the very beginning. How about dinner and a movie? How do you turn that down, right? Isn't that story about paying for long-term care and Medicaid eligibility so romantic? I love those two. Medicaid has a lot of different rules when it comes to asset limits and married couples. So Sandra's next step is to meet with a financial advisor for some help in figuring all this out. Eric Burton and Martha Mills thought they'd figured it out. They used to have a simple system separate checking accounts and a joint account for their combined expenses. We took the portion of our incomes that was our bills and and we just split that proportionally. Then they had a baby. Martha stayed at home. And now the only money coming in is from Eric's job as an industrial mechanic at a Champaign, Illinois pharmaceutical factory. And sometimes money's tight. Martha, do you still have that separate checking account that used to be your spending money? <laughs> I do, and I think it has about sixteen dollars in it. <laughs> um, the The way we kind of do it now, and and this was a really big adjustment too, is um, me getting used to not actually having any sort of financial contribution to our family, to our household. Um, I have my own credit card, but even you know the bill for that comes out of 
what Eric makes, but it's at least kind of what I spend not be, you know, something that he sees, not that— Which which drives (laughs) me crazy, though, because I track all of our expenses. You know, I budget things and say, oh, you know, we spent $200 in one month going out. Like, we can't do that. But then there's just the mystery— Martha's credit card. And I'm like, well, I don't know where to budget this. You bought gas with that, but I can't put that into gas. So it does drive me crazy. But I, I think you know, we meet. How often do we meet and discuss budget? I'd say quarterly. Yeah. That, that sounds more formal than it is. But every now and then, who we're like, calls Let's go those over meetings? I have, a, yeah. I have a guess who calls those I totally meetings. Do. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we just there's sit no down question. and go over things. And there's, I mean, there aren't things that we do extra. I, I mean, no. Well, it's funny too when I, I, I think it was the first. Mother's Day that we had after Alba was born, Eric basically had to force me into the car and to the mall to buy new clothes for myself because not contributing financially, I got into this kind of weird headspace where I would refuse to buy things for myself. And I'm a runner, too, and I I was in pain running, and he, he had to kind of force me to go and buy new running shoes because I didn't feel comfortable yet. So he had to take you to the mall for yes. you to make that <laughs> yes, purchase. Yes, I forgot about how rough that used to be. Yeah. And yeah, it's still, I still, like still kind of have to like roll my eyes and just be like, just go get some yeah. pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eric earns just about what it takes to cover their family's expenses, about $60,000 a year. Lola Davidson's engagement ring cost more than that. It was, I think it was a 3.4 something, and I don't remember the VSs, you know, the quality at the time. I knew that it cost $65,000. Wow. So more more than the average American salary on your hand. Yeah. Wow, when you say it like that. But that diamond was not forever. Coming up, her story about what happens when you lose your relationship and with it, all the money that was supporting you. It's been wonderful to listen in on the conversations that financial therapist Amanda Clayman has been having with some of our listeners over the past few weeks. Money stress is so pervasive and so hard to talk about, which is why I've also really appreciated reading the emails and hearing the voice memos you've been sending in as we've been releasing these episodes, like from Robin in Virginia, who had just built up a solid emergency fund when the pandemic hit. And now she's trying to figure out how to keep saving and when to indulge the urge to spend. I'm feeling like emotionally depleted and, um, yeah, exhausted and tired. And I am starting to reach a point where I'm like, okay, I think I am going to spend a little bit more money. Like nothing outrageous, but I am going to, yeah, spend money on things that I know will help me. Even though our financial therapy series has wrapped up for now, money anxiety is one thing that never goes away. So it's likely something we'll come back to. We would love your feedback on this series. If you have a couple of minutes, head over to deathsexmoney.org slash FT survey and let us know what you think. 
And looking ahead, we have some exciting news. Next Tuesday, June 16th, we're going to be streaming a live conversation with writer Michael Arsenault. He was on the show last year talking with me about sex, religion, and Beyonce, and his first book called I Can't Date Jesus. He's got a new book out this year called I Don't Want to Die Poor, about his experience graduating into the Great Recession and scrambling to catch up ever since. I'm going to talk to him about that, and I'm also going to ask him some of your questions. And we'd particularly love to hear from new college graduates entering the workforce at a similarly scary time. If you could use a little guidance from someone who's been there before, email your questions for Michael to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Then tune in next Tuesday, June 16th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You can watch it on our Facebook page or keep your eyes peeled for a link in our newsletter. Subscribe to that at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. About 13 years ago, Lola Davidson was working a day job in L.A. with dreams of an acting career. She fell in love with a very wealthy man, and he loved her back. When we were together, he... he lavished me with gifts, and I never paid for a meal, and we would just go to the mall on the weekends, and he would just buy me stuff. What kinds of things would he buy you? Shoes and purses, and, um, well, we were looking at Rolexes, and he always wanted a Rolex, and I was like, you deserve a Rolex. You work hard. And we ended up walking out of the store with both of us having matching Rolexes. When we moved in together, he had the idea of me quitting my day job and focusing on my fumbling acting career. So wait, I, wait. So he's not only paying for for a lot of things when you go out, and then yeah. he suggests that you quit working. Yes. Which I thought was a genius idea. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I wasn't paying for rent. Um, he bought me a car, so I had a BMW. I felt safe and provided for. Hmm. Do you remember any moments of ambivalence or mixed feelings or like, wow, I, he's really paying for everything? I think when we got the condo, the real estate lady was like, oh, so what do you two do for a living? And I remember saying some obnoxious thing like, living the dream. <laughs> and her response was, as it should be. They make the money and us women spend the money. Now, if somebody said that, I would just be like, are you fucking kidding me? But at that time in my life, it felt more like approval. And then the relationship started to unravel a bit. Yeah. I had some old demons um, that came back. Um, when I say old demons, I mean cocaine. You know, money started to go really fast. And he asked me to get a job to contribute and to, you know, cut down on my spending. And... I didn't really care for that idea as much. Just, that was it. He found somebody new and wanted me out of the house immediately. So what did you do? How did you pay for a new place? Well, he did let me keep my ring, to which I sold. And I lived off of that for a little while. So, so I, you really know how much money it was worth? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I sold my plasma once. I got a crappy apartment in Hollywood that 
I managed so I would have free rent. I began being a personal assistant for some people in Beverly Hills, but that still wouldn't pay my bills also, so I got a job at my favorite gym on the weekends. And then I had a friend of mine who was making salad dressing that she was selling at farmer's markets, and then all of a sudden a retail store called for her, and she needed help with more production. So I would help her make salad dressing at a restaurant you know, from the hours of 10 p.m. until like 2 (laughs) a.m. So I was working seven days a week. How old were you? uh, I was at that time, gosh, 34. Were you terrified? I, well, first off, I thought at any moment I was going to call and this was all going to end. And then I wasn't terrified about my future. I was more terrified about my my present. Mm Mm-hmm. Like survival. Yeah, survival. Thinking back on that relationship now, it's been it's been a few years. What did you learn? I learned that when everything you have is provided for you by someone, then it's real easy for everything you are to be provided by that someone. And so when that someone is gone, you are left wondering who you are. Hmm. I didn't know who I was, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was such a hit on me, because my identity was so wrapped up with him and that lifestyle, this money that wasn't mine. Lola still goes on auditions, but pays her bills with a full-time personal assistant job. I own my own life now, she told me. So it's easy to be naive about the financial entanglements in love until you get burned. Or when a breakup comes with a stack of paperwork. I'll never forget sitting at the dining room table with my soon-to-be ex-husband, going over bank statements. Our split was very sad, but amicable. And we were young, without kids, much money, or much debt, so we did the math ourselves. A lawyer told us to start by going back to the date we got married. So there we were, shuffling papers and scrolling back through statements to our wedding day. A day that had been about love and commitment and partnership for the future was now part of a financial calculation. So we added it up, what we'd saved and spent and built over three and a half years, and on our desktop calculator, divided by two. I was on my own again. It's a jolt you don't easily forget. In a previous relationship, I had co-signed on a car and paid the price for that continually for five years thereafter. Lori Crystal Roth lives in Seattle. When she first met her wife, Krista, she was in her 40s. Krista was in her 30s. And at first, Krista says it was hard for Lori to share. I think we were still using the blue book where we had columns of what we were spending. What was mine and what was yours? Separate and joint. And when you say blue book, so was this like pen to paper tracking dollar amounts? Yeah. yeah, it was just like a regular school notebook where you you open up the metal part and you put the paper with the holes in it. 
And, it's a three-wing yeah, binder, yeah. baby. Yeah, it was a three-wing <laughs> binder. That's what it was. And Lori is a project manager, so she was all about putting her MBA to work on this. She was really into the blue book. It made me feel good. You know, and I, I was more fiscally conservative than, than Lori. I remember when we were just dating, <laughs> she went out and bought a brand new Harley Davidson. And we were not discussing finances. All I could see was like, oh, you're going to have payments for forever. So and you're quietly head, judging like, her while she, while she's talking about her yeah, new purchase she's excited head, about. Saying, uh, if we stay together, then that's going to be my payment too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, weren't you totally like, oh, that's so hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was separate. Yes, yes, you were. Separate thing. Lori, so you initially wrote me. You said, prior to being married, I had never, all caps, never shared my money and always kept it separate. And then you said that changed the day you got married. What changed for you? I guess, and this is all like romantic drivel kind of stuff, but (laughs) I really felt like, there was this entity that was us Hmm. and that entity included everything, you know, all of her stuff, all of my stuff. And it just didn't bother me anymore. Plus, I mean, I trust her a hundred percent. So I don't feel like there's no fear. Where's the blue book now? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think when we moved, this is what I remember, Krista, you, you, keep me honest here, but it was covered with dust and we took out all the pages. We shredded them. I don't even remember. Yeah, I remember. I remember the You remember shredding shredding it. (laughs) Yeah, because, and looking at it and just sort of shaking my head like, wow, that used to be really important to me. That's Lori Crystal Roth and her wife Krista. If you want to know what's happened for some of these listeners in the years since this episode first came out, subscribe to our newsletter. We share life updates from past guests and all other kinds of fun behind-the-scenes stuff. Get it at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm usually based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affy Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to the early Death, Sex, and Money team who worked on this episode, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Henry Malofsky, Chris Bannon, Bill O'Neill, and Jim Briggs. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music, and listener Chris Dixon sent in one of the songs that we used in this episode. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thank you to Kelly Jensen in Montana, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Kelly and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Thanks again for sharing so many of your stories about money with us. Rob Durham from Kokomo, Indiana, is going to take us out. My husband and I get stressed out at times, especially when we're broke. But for the most part, we seize those moments to work together instead of fighting against each other. After all, when two people are in love, they will make it work one way or another. Death, sex, or money. Am I right? Am I right?
I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 